Okay. Well, um, hey, great to be here. You've managed to get here. Was it troublesome finding your way? No? A couple of, yes? Some people, no? It was all right. All right, no one's given me anything. All right, we are going. <laughs> um, those who found it hard aren't here, apparently. I think that's probably more the issue. Hey, we're in a uh, four-week series in the Old Testament book, The Song of Songs. It's an erotic love song between a husband and wife declaring their affection for one another. And we've been saying that the Song of Songs is uh, its like a jigsaw puzzle. If you get a whole bunch of pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, dump them on a table. It's all a mess. And has anyone ever tried to do a jigsaw puzzle without the box, <laughs> without the picture? That would be incredibly difficult, wouldn't it? And the Song of Songs is like the box of the jigsaw puzzle. It doesn't show us everything that's wrong, but it does show us very much what's right with relationships. The rest of the Bible will talk about what's wrong with our relationships, but very much it's, it shows us the way things are meant to be in relationships. Now, as we come to this topic, um, I realize there are people in the room who are married and uh, there's nothing more important in the world to them than their marriage. And there are those of us, some of us are married, and there's nothing harder uh, in our lives than our relationships. Some of us are single and happy. We're enjoying our freedom. And some of us are single, and it's a source of great loneliness. For some of us, um, we've perhaps even in the room today, you've experienced the souring of a relationship just this week. And to come and talk about these things is difficult. And there are those among us who are divorced or separated. And as we go through these weeks on this topic, it can feel like we're running our hand across the scar tissue of this area where we have deep wounds. But this series is a little bit like a jigsaw puzzle box. We're seeing God's design for marriage, and our lines aren't perfectly lined up to that design. That's all right. He's got forgiving grace, but he's showing us the picture. And we need to talk about this topic very carefully so that God's Word can heal us and it can direct us and challenge us and comfort us and assist us. God loves us and He knows what's best for us. And so we need to come to terms with what He's saying and listen so that we might obey what He says in His Word. We mustn't distort the Word of God and make it say what we want it to say. That would be a waste of time, and, uh, and it would mean we're not listening to God. Nothing more important than listening to God. Today, we're coming to the topic of the flame of intimacy. We've seen so far that words are so important in our relationships, not just romantically, but in all of our relationships. That was week one. Last week, we saw how sex is body language. It's a way of saying to someone, I belong completely and exclusively to you. And this week, we're talking about the flame of intimacy, the flame of love. And this love song, the Song of Songs, it's a song. And I'm encouraging Liv to write a song based on, actually, I think you should do chapter eight. Uh, okay, she's going to do it, right? And we should sing this song in weddings. But our problem is we don't have any music to go along with. We've just got the words. And so every week, I've chosen four songs to try and get us into the feel of the song. And so we're going to play a game. Oh, we're going to do questions today as well. You can ask a question at any time during the message. Head over to Slido and the code is VINE and, and we'll do questions afterwards. But we're going to play a game, name that song. 
If you shout out the artist or the song name, you will get a cherry ripe. Are you ready to play 11 a.m.? Yeah. All right, four songs. And um, uh, yeah, there is some bias in these songs. I had to pick one song that was more millennial. Uh, and so those of you who are younger and like pop music, you'll, you'll at least get one this week. All right, so the first song, you need to be vocal, right? I, I can't hear all the way to the back. So shout it out, Karis. Here we go. Jaunty, go. Oh, oh, Kelly as well. Did, did, there you go, Kelly. Oh. <laughs> All right, so yes, uh, Taylor Swift song, Lover. Can I go where you go? Can we always be this close forever and ever? Uh, that's the first. That's what I think if we set it to music, Song of Songs Chapter 8 would sound like. Second song, here we go. Anyone? Got it, Sue. The Beatles can't buy me love. Oh, oh, sorry. Uh, and in the Song of Songs this week, the the girl will sing to her lover, if one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. In other words, money can't buy you love. Third song is a bit more niche. No one? Just live and I like this song? Anyone know who this band is? No one? Just live? <laughs> the Civil Wars. Very good. Um, and uh, the Song of Songs, it's a duet. And the reason I love the Civil Wars, they, they sing these duets to, to one another. And this song, Dance Me to the End of Love, originally by Leonard Cohen, it's about... Uh, her asking her partner to dance her to the end of love, all the way to the end of life. Let's dance in love together. It's a beautiful song. And the final song. I fell into a ring of fire. No one? Anyone? Who is it? Anyone? Dave, there we go. Johnny Cash, Ring of Fire. And it burns, burns, burns. The ring of fire, the ring of fire. Great song. And I've called this week by that title, Ring of Fire, because at the end of the passage here, did you realize what she says to her lover? She asks him to love her like a blazing fire, like a mighty flame. And I don't know, maybe Johnny Cash got this song from Song of Songs chapter 8. Today we're thinking about three points about love. Um, Three things. What does uh, the flame of love look like in marriage? What is its essence and how do you keep it alive? Three things. First of all, what does love look like? Open your Bibles, Song of Songs, chapter 8. And this is how this section begins. Uh, the friends sing to the lovers, saying, verse 5, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Now, I want to just stay with that verse for a little while with you. They sing, Who is this coming up from the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? And the answer is that it's the young girl who's been the focus of the song. She's leaning on her lover, her friend, um, her husband, and they're coming up from home, possibly from their honeymoon. And notice arm in arm, his shoulder over hers, her leaning on him. Possibly they're coming up from their honeymoon, and it's possible, actually, they've been married 40 years. 
and this is a 40 years later and they're coming up from a night away and I love that picture isn't it quirky like these two old people so so <laughs> they look like modern day hipsters actually uh, with their hats um, but they're at the beach holding hands and throughout the song we're given these metaphors that describe the way they are to one another at one point he climbs her like a palm tree incredibly erotic another point she's drinking in his kisses like a sip of fine wine but today the image we get is of them walking together, arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, her resting her head against his chest as they walk through life. It's a really moving picture. What does love look like? It looks like her leaning on him. And as I read this, I thought of the Garden of Eden when God makes from Adam's rib and side a wife for him, Eve. And uh, theologians have debated why the rib for many, many years, and no one's really sure, we're never told. But I like what Matthew Henry says. He says, Eve was made not out of his head to rule over him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected by him, and near his heart to be loved. And that's one of the beautiful images of the Bible, a journey from the wilderness from, to the safety of the promised land, accompanied and protected by her lover, leaning on her husband. What does love look like? It looks like a girl leaning on her husband. Now, this is not to say that she leans on her husband for everything. She may not need to lean in on him for anything. As From what we can tell about this woman in this, she is incredibly capable and confident and resourceful but she doesn't care she's like she wants to lean on her man and enjoy his protective and affectionate embrace now in the new testament the apostle paul he says something similar he says husbands love your wives uh, cherish your wives be willing to lay your life down for your wife and he says wives submit to your husbands or perhaps a better translation is entrust yourself to your husbands. Because the word submission, it's such a dirty word these days. But, but in the Bible, it doesn't at all mean uh, an inferior bowing to a superior. That is not at all what... It's saying, wives, if you find a guy, a good guy, right, that you trust, entrust yourself to him. Don't fight him. Don't compete with him. Enjoy his protection. Enjoy his embrace and uh, it's very hard to do that but rely on him trust him respect him and that is a massive challenge to the men in the room because she is to lean on you is she just going to fall over <laughs> like are you leanable are you reliable can she rely on you and trust you and so man man you better be worthy of respect C.S. Lewis famously distinguished eros from philia, friendship love from erotic love, and in erotic love he described it as two people face to face. And we see that a lot in the Song of Songs, naked, standing before one another, face to face, kissing. But friendship love is two people standing side by side, shoulder to shoulder, walking through life together. And that's what this couple have. They're not just face to face. They're shoulder to shoulder. Who is this coming up from the wilderness leaning on her lover? Early, earlier she sings, this is my beloved, my friend. 
And so friendship is that it comes from walking together in the same direction, having something in common. And for me, one of the great examples of friendship is Legolas and Gimli in The Lord of the Rings, right? Uh, Legolas is an elf, Gimli's a dwarf, and they hate one another. There's a lot of bitterness between the two races. But they come together and they form the Fellowship of the Ring because they have this mission to destroy the Ring of Power in the fires of Mount Doom. And they go on this journey with the hobbits, with Gandalf and Aragorn, and uh, to destroy the ring. And on the way, they start fighting alongside one another. And eventually, they'll start fighting for one another. And as a result, they become great friends. They become the deepest friends. And that's a great picture for how friendship works. Friendship is when you walk shoulder to shoulder through life with someone else, that you have a common goal, a common destination, the same journey. And the best marriages are where you are friends. Now, that's interesting because in an age uh, in ancient cultures where wives were considered the property of their husbands and marriage was seen as a business trans a business transaction trying to increase social status or wealth, here we're told in the Bible, no, no, marriage is for friendship. And in our society, with its emphasis on romance and sex, it's radical to insist, no, 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 what is marriage? It's friendship, where you trust the other person, where you share things, where you take advice. And many of us know, you know, the stereotype is that men overvalue beauty, women overvalue wealth and social status in looking for a potential... This is a generalization. I'm not saying all of you did, right? Uh, but uh, that is the generalization. But that's a problem because if you marry someone for these things other than friendship, you'll ultimately be disappointed because wealth is a fickle thing. It comes and goes, and so does physical beauty. If you marry for those things, those things will decrease. But if you marry for friendship, that's able to grow. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why God calls us. Um, actually, let me, let me just apply that. For Liz and I, actually, at this point, you know, friendship is so important. It comes from side by side, but having a common goal. And so if you're married, what is the purpose of your marriage? What is the goal? It can't just be about you two face to face. You've got to be going somewhere. Where are you going? Yesterday, we ran a marriage enrichment day here. We had... Um, over 34 couples in the room, and it was a wonderful time of trying to strengthen marriages. And, um, but it was my day off, so I didn't get a day off this week. I was just working all week. Why did I do that? Well, it's because for Liz, one of her greatest passions is to invest in the marriages of people in our church. She loves that. And uh, we feel that we haven't had enough help the last 20 years, and so we want to help others. And so as we think about, okay, where are we going? What are we doing in life? It's like, well, what's the thing I can do with her that we're serving God together? And so for us, it's uh, investing in people's marriages. Um, and that's what we were able to do to, uh, yesterday together. And she was filled with a sense of purpose together. It was worth losing a day off for. Um, but if you're married, what is that purpose in your life? What has God called you to do uniquely? What is your purpose? vision? What's your mission? What, and, and how do you get on the same page about that? Sometimes married people, they're like ships in the night. He's got her thing, she's got her thing, which is good. You need that. But what's your thing together? 
And so friendship is right at the heart of um, marriage. And this is one of the reasons why God calls you to only marry someone who shares your spiritual beliefs. If you don't do that, not only are you going against God's command, but life gets very difficult. It's very difficult when you marry someone who doesn't share your beliefs, who isn't on the same journey, whose life mission differs from yours. And so if you're following Jesus, right at the center of your life is Jesus Christ. But if you marry someone who doesn't have Jesus at the center of your life, it's going to be very difficult for them to understand you completely because you're not on a common journey. You're not going to a common destination and you don't agree on what's at the center of life. And so either you have to push Jesus from the center of your life to the periphery to keep them at the center with you, or you need to push them to the periphery to keep Jesus at the center. And if you push Jesus to the margins of your life, that may not, you know, it's not, doesn't mean that you're actually giving up faith, but it may mean you're not able to go to church as much, may mean it'll impact your ability to be part of a community group, to serve, to use your money to build Jesus' kingdom, um, to invite people into your home for hospitality. All of those things will have to be minimized and avoided in order to preserve the peace in the home. Alternatively, if you hold Jesus at the center and you'll end up pushing your partner to the margins if they won't join you in your community group or if they won't join you in prayer, or if you'll invite others from church around to your house, but you know they're not part of that. And so you end up doing things in life where there isn't a common journey. You're not arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, achieving the same mission in life. And some of you are married to people who don't share your faith in Jesus, and you know this difficulty, that you walk a tightrope on this, and that God's not asking you to leave them at all if you're married. You're bound, but He is asking you to love them in such a rich and deep way that they might get a glimpse of God's love. And you can read more about that in 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Peter 2. That'll teach you what to do. But here's the flame of intimacy. What does it look like? It looks like friendship. She leans on Him. They walk side by side, shoulder to shoulder, he uses his strength to protect and nourish her. That's the first thing, what it looks like. Secondly, what is the essence? If that's what it looks like, what's right at the heart of this thing? How would you define the flame of intimacy in a marriage? In verse 6, the girl starts singing again to her man, and she sings this, Place me like a seal over your heart. Like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. Many waters cannot quench love. Rivers can't sweep it away. If one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it would be utterly scorned. Now, this is the first time we're actually given a definition of love in the song. Up until this point, love's just described. Oh, it's like going for a walk in spring, you know. But here we're told what love is. And she starts by saying, place me like a seal on your heart. She's saying to him, I want you to love me right at the very center. A seal in the ancient world was used, it was sewn onto a shirt to show who owned that thing. 
whose possession it was. And in the New Testament, we're told that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. So who do you belong to? Uh, You are God's possession, and He owns you. You belong to Him, and He won't lose you, which is a great promise, isn't it? It doesn't matter what goes on in your life. You belong to Him, and you can't get rid of that seal because the Holy Spirit is the seal. It's the sign you belong to God. What a precious promise. And she turns to Him and says, Place me like a seal on your heart. You know, I want to know that I belong to you, that that I'm your possession, I'm yours, and you are mine. She wants this wholehearted devotion. But not only does she want him to put a seal on his heart, she wants him to wear a seal on his arm, verse 6. So she wants inward and outward affection and commitment. Now, the modern equivalent of this is a wedding ring. You know, a wedding ring says, I am bound to my wife. It says something to Liz that I'm hers, and it says something to you that I'm off off market. I'm bound. I'm wed to someone else. I belong to Liz. And that's what this girl's saying. She says, put me like a seal on your arm and on your heart. She's saying, never take that wedding ring off. I want the world to know that you are bound to me. And it's not just to be true that your finger is bound. I want your own heart to belong to me. And that's what she is singing. And for this reason, marriage must be public. It's not enough for two people to say, hey, yeah, let's be married. Let's move in together, start having, yeah, we're married, but not make those promises in front of other people. Uh, If other people don't know you're married, you're not married. I mean, the reason the ceremony is important is because you're getting up and you're putting the seal on your shoulder. You're going public with it. It's not marriage unless it's public. If your love was true, you'd be willing to declare it publicly that you're committed to this person for the rest of your life. And that's why she says, seal on your heart, a seal on your shoulder. And then she gives a number of reasons for why she asked for that kind of commitment. See what she says, verse 6? For love is as strong as death, and it burns like a blazing fire. So they're the two metaphors, death and fire. She wants her lover to love her with a love as strong as death. What is death? Death is the, the worst enemy we have. It's the strongest thing in our world. It hunts us down and one day will take you captive. And she's saying to her lover, I want your love to hunt me all, all the days. I want it to be with me as strong as death. And then she says, it's jealousy unyielding as the grave. Now, for us, jealousy is a negative emotion usually. I have kids, and they always fight about toys and food, and I'm constantly saying, share, be generous, Uh, stop being so jealous, you know. And um, But there are some things in life that aren't meant to be shared. You're meant to be jealous for your marriage. St. Augustine said, he that is not jealous is not in love. And so if you really love them, you'd want their exclusive commitment to you. I'm reading this excellent book at the moment, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution by Louise Perry. Has anyone seen this book? It is phenomenal. She's not a Christian. Uh, she's a secular feminist journalist in, um, in the United Kingdom that 
has realized that the sexual revolution has not been good for society, and in particular, women have, uh, have not been the beneficiaries of the sexual revolution. And so she just does a heap of really helpful research on that. But in it, she looks at um, open marriages, which are fashionable these days. And, you know, uh, oh, it's okay, don't be so jealous, he can sleep with her, whatever. And she goes to the Reddit forums of people in open marriages. And the thing that struck her was just how much jealousy is spewing out of these people. Like, even in open marriages where it's meant to be, oh, it's okay, they are so profoundly jealous because this is the way God's wired us. Marriage is not to be, you're not to share your lover with anyone else. They belong to you and you belong to them. Now, this doesn't mean you should be possessive or controlling. They've got to have the freedom to live their life. And God hasn't given her, God hasn't given Liz to me to meet every single one of my relational needs. I need friends outside of that. And I need to be able to talk to members of the opposite sex. That's totally fine. But you need to guard the exclusivity of your relationship and never act in a way that looks like you might have love for someone else. Being jealous is entirely appropriate. Now, for Liz and I, we have just a couple of boundaries which help us in this regard. Um, we have a, one rule, which is that I'm never in a private place alone with another woman. So as a pastor, I'm often meeting with women uh, to counsel them or they're, doing, uh, they're serving at church. So I'm meeting um, just the two of us, uh, and that's entirely appropriate. But whenever I'm doing that, it's always in a public place, either in the office when people are around or it's out at a cafe, and that's totally cool. Um, but if it's just the two of us, I'm not okay with Liz just being in a private place with another man, and nor is she with me. That's one of our boundaries. And the other is that it's okay for us to be in a car during the day alone with another woman, but not at night. They're just two ways where we're trying to guard and protect one another. This is what the girl says. Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm. For love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, like a mighty flame. I can't get Johnny Cash's song out of my head. The taste of love is sweet. When hearts like ours meet, I fell for you like a child. Oh, but the fire went wild. I fell into a burning ring of fire. And she wants to be loved with a burning, passionate, fiery love. She doesn't want his love to be like the flicker of a candle. She's asking him to love her with the power of a mighty Australian bushfire. That's what she's saying. Undying commitment. Inextinguishable love. And then she says, verse 7, many waters can't quench love, rivers can't sweep it away. So there are many things that come up in a relationship that try and dampen love. But she's saying, no, 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 if, if the waters of the Pacific Ocean fell on this flame, it would be the waters that get evaporated, not the fire that gets put out. That's the kind of love that she wants from her husband. What a great metaphor. Uh, that she says. And finally, she says, if one were to give all the wealth of one's house for love, it'd be utterly scorned. In, or in the words of the Beatles, money can't buy you love. 
So here is this burning love. It's exclusive, wholehearted, permanent, jealous, passionate, relentless, burning fire that cannot be drowned. Nothing can diminish it. And the essence, you know, what is the essence of all of those adjectives? It is commitment. It is, I'm here for you no matter what. Boil it down. Commitment is the essence of what marriage is. Now, what does love look like? It looks like friendship, but the essence of that is commitment. It's a willingness not to go anywhere else. It's saying to your lover, I'm here no matter what, for better or worse. That's where we're at. Even when the conflict feels so difficult to resolve, even when challenging circumstances test your patience, even when you've allowed tedium to creep into your marriage, or when a job or injury or illness is making it impossible for your lover to give their body to you, the heart of marriage is this inextinguishable, committed love. You're not going anywhere no matter what happens. And therefore, staying in marriage is not, it's not primarily about staying in desire. The key to staying marriage is not the key isn't to keep the emotions boiling. The key is to keep your commitment. And that's why the community gets together for people's wedding days. Because this is a moment where you're making your vow in front of other people. And uh, this is the problem with so much of the modern wedding vows where people get it wrong. You know, people ask me, can we do our wedding vows? I'm like, say it at your reception. But uh, you're not doing it in church because what I see when people write their own vows, they're expressing their desire and their love for the person on that day. You look beautiful with your, your, your nice blonde hair or something like that, right? Her hair might change, right? And what I notice in the vows people are writing, it's about why they like the person today. And it's about what they like from the person. But you hear the wedding vows that, Actually, in the prayer book service we do, it's all about not what I'm getting from you. It's about what I'm willing to give to you, which is why at my wedding, my father-in-law in his Father of the Bride speech said to Liz and I, every anniversary, sit down, open the prayer book and say your vows to one another again. Uh, I, Toby, in the presence of God, take you, Lizzie, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better or worse, richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish as long as we both shall live. This is my solemn vow and promise. And nothing about the way I like watching her play netball or whatever, right? It's all about what I'm promising her. That's the essence of marital love. It's not the feeling. The feeling's great. so important. That's what we are talking about yesterday at our marriage enrichment day. But the essence of this love is commitment. And that enables you to stay married even when the feeling's cool. You can wait for the feelings to come back because feelings do ebb and flow. And they are like the flickering flame of a candle. But the mighty Australian bushfire of love is the commitment. I'm not going anywhere. Liz and I, we had to do this. In our first year of marriage, it was very hard. And uh, we kept throwing around the D word. And, uh, and we got to a point where we said, this isn't helpful. And we promised one another we're locking the hatch. There's no escape. Right? Uh, but that was incredibly, there's no way out of this. We have to work at this. 
And so people don't fall out of love, they fall out of commitment. Two-thirds of unhappy marriages, the research shows, that if they persevere, they will become happy in five years' time. And so the thing that keeps marriages together, it's the vows, your vow to the world, to the partner, to God, I am here for you for better or worse. Now, does that mean there are no grounds for divorce? Well, I haven't spoken about this for a while, and I think pastorally, every now and then, we need to talk about divorce. So if you've got a Bible open, move over to Matthew chapter 19. And have a look here what Jesus teaches us about marriage and divorce. Matthew 19, verse 3, we read, Some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. There we see their heart. And they asked him, Jesus, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? Now, just you, you see their heart there. For any and every reason, the Pharisees said it was okay to divorce your wife if she put down, she cooked you dinner and you didn't like it. It was terrible. Women were being disposed of in that culture and Jesus rejects that view. He says, haven't you read, don't you know your Bibles, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and He said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh so they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. See, Jesus says, he reiterates the absolute priority of the commitment. God has joined you together. You are one flesh. You are not to separate. How dare you think you can divorce one another for any and every reason? But then they ask the question, well, verse 7, why did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. And Jesus said, Moses didn't command you to divorce your wives. He permitted it. For what purpose? Look down at verse 8. He permitted you to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard and selfish. Well, it wasn't this way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So Jesus denies that you can divorce your husband or wife for any reason. Quoting Genesis, he says, marriage is a covenant. It's not a casual relationship. And he says, if you divorce your wife so that you can go marry someone else who you've fallen in love with, he calls that adultery. It's legal adultery, but he still calls it adultery because you're cheating on your wife. And so he says, no, the marriage, it's, it's essential but he does name a violation of the marriage covenant, which for him permits divorce. And that is here sexual immorality. He says, if they've cheated on you and are continuing to cheat on you, that's grounds for the injured party to initiate a divorce. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 will also talk about willful desertion, that is that they run off and they're not providing for you. And these two actions essentially break the covenant so thoroughly that, uh, that the, the bond of marriage is irreparably broken, and, um, and they are reasons why God permits divorce. 
But for the Pharisees who like any and every reason, Jesus is like, you are hollowing out the teaching of God on the commitment to marriage. It's covenant, can't be broken. It's not easy divorce. Right, so I liken it to a, an airbag in the car. Is divorce ever an option for Liz and I? Like, I don't get in a car and think, is the airbag ever an option? Like, I don't go driving and go, oh, if this doesn't work out, I've got an airbag, everything will be fine. Like, I'm not crashing my car. But if the car gets crashed, the airbag softens the impact. And that's divorce, never a good thing. It's permitted in the case of human sinfulness for the injured party to initiate a process that legalizes what's already happened, which is they've abandoned you, they've cheated on you, or in the case of domestic abuse, they are violent towards you and not honoring their promise. And so that's divorce, and I feel like I need to say that because we need, uh, our culture's gone away from the essence of marriage being commitment. No, you can change your commitments, but God's like, don't you dare. But divorce is permitted in those rare cases. There's more to say. I'd love to say more. You can ask questions in question time. Finally, well, how do you keep the flame of commitment alive in marriage? Because here's the problem. What I've been saying to you is you need to keep loving, keep serving, keep giving, even when you're not getting anything in return. And for some of us, we're like, how do you do that? That doesn't sound possible or even safe. If I'm always thinking about them and they are thinking about them, who's thinking about me? And uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, he said something very helpful on this. He said, the one who in love forgets himself in order to think about someone else, such a person is not forgotten there is one who is thinking about them, God in heaven. God is love. And when a person out of love forgets himself, how could God forget him? Then he goes on and says, the self-lover is busy. He shouts and makes a big noise and stands on his rights in order to make sure he is not forgotten, and yet he is forgotten. And many people are like that in their relationships. They fight for their rights and they make a lot of noise about what they deserve it's very hard to love people like that. Kierkegaard says they're forgotten, but the one who loves, who forgets himself in love, is remembered by God. And that is what is able to give you the safety to keep loving even when you're not getting it in return. God loves you deeply, and that enables you to keep loving, keep giving, even when you feel like you're not getting anything in return. And I think the girl in this song, she knows that. So come back to this key verse again, verse 6, which I'd love you, live to write a song to. But uh, verse 6, uh, the pressure's on, sorry. Uh, but verse 6, Place me like a seal over your heart, like a seal on your arm, for love is as strong as death. It's jealousy unyielding as the grave. It burns like blazing fire, or like a mighty flame, or literally like the flame of Yah. Kelly read something. What was your version, Kelly? Yeah, like the flame of the Lord, is it? Yeah, yeah. So Yahweh is the name God gave Moses. And the girl in this passage, she's saying to her lover, I want you to love me the way God loves me at this point. 
He loves, his love is like a mighty Australian bushfire. Nothing else in this world is like that. And I think at this point, as good as her relationship is with this guy, she's like, it's nothing on the love of God. And that's what we all need to know, because it doesn't matter how great your marriage is, this is an ideal picture. This is the front of the jigsaw box, right? And we need to know what's ideal, but you are a messed up jigsaw puzzle. And married people need to know that and know the ultimate love is God's. And single people need to know that, lest you make an idol of getting married. And so let's just stop at the end here and reflect on God's love. His love is like the Australian bushfire. How do we know that? Well, as he's dying on the cross for you, so many things were, you had oceans of evil trying to drown out Jesus' love for you. And yet in the greatest act of love in the world, he stayed for you. For your, He could have pulled himself off the cross. He could have called down angels to fight for him. He could have done any of that, but he stayed in great agony to win your salvation. And his love was undying. It punched through the grave, rose three days later. He sends you the spirit of love to be with you that you might have his love poured out into your hearts. His love is undrownable, unquenchable, and it is jealous for you. He wears his seal on his heart and his shoulder. He is not ashamed to be called your friend. And he demands that of us, that you wouldn't be ashamed of him that you wouldn't give yourself to idols, that he would be utmost in your life, that you would wear a seal on your arm and a seal in your heart, and that you would love him above all things. And so here is a true and burning love, which all the experience of whether we're happily married, unhappily married, divorced, widowed, or single, no human love can provide that. And so every week, as we go through this, I just want to stop at the end and remind us, this is the steak knives we're talking about. But the house, the boat, the car, that's God's love. What we get together in church to do week in, week out, is to know God's love, to rejoice in it. And as we talk about human love, it's important we do so. God's put this here for a reason, but it is not ultimate. And don't think that it could possibly be ultimate. Your name is written on God's heart. What a wonderful thing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we, we just sit in that knowledge of your great love for us, that you so loved the world, you gave your one and only precious Son that all who'd believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. This is love, not that we loved you, but you loved us and gave your son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You've poured out your love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And as we, uh, we're, we're prone to forget that love, we're prone not to feel it, our hearts are prone to wander from it, and we've come together to remind one another today that there's nothing greater, nothing sweeter. It's better than life itself. Remind us of that, we pray today. Amen.